and welcome to Show and Tell with Biggins. This is the podcast where I invite one of my friends to show off three things that tell a story from their lives. I love my belongings and the stories that are attached to them. That's why in this podcast, I'll be asking my guests to share the stories of some of the things that take pride of place in their homes. Big or small, old or new, their selections are completely up to them. So without any further delay, it's time to welcome our show and teller, Patricia Hodge. Patricia Hodge is an actress who has been performing in the West End since 1972. Since then, she's been in countless productions, as well as winning an Olivier Award in the year 2000. She has also appeared on our screens, most notably in the hit BBC sitcom Miranda. Patricia, how nice to see you, and thank you so much for agreeing to do this uh, uh, pod, whatever it's called. Uh, It's marvellous. (laughs) Um, uh, listen, you're uh, one of the few people who I know are working at the moment. And what actually are you doing? I am in the middle of doing series two of All Creatures Great and Small, as in the new, the new incarnation of it, uh, which we film in Yorkshire, of course, in the Yorkshire Dales, and which is lovely. I mean, it's lovely. I'm not there at this minute, obviously, but um, I go back again in a couple of weeks. The first series I thought was terrific. And you've taken over from Diana Rigg, haven't you? Yes. Um, I've, I've become Mrs. Pumphrey, um, which Diana started, bless her. Um, and then, you know, un- very unexpectedly, because um, they all said she seemed very well when she was filming it. So um, it's a sorrow. But anyway, I, I, you know, it, it will be sort of reincarnated. And do you like animals? I do, actually. Well, I love dogs. I'm much more of a dog person than I am a cat person. Let's put it like that. Yeah, I agree. And uh, so, and, and I'm really lucky with this because what, what's um, key to this character is this obsession with her Pekingese dog. So you've got to pray that you get a dog that uh, you can work with. And the dog we, we have, which in real life is called Derek. <laughs> Is the most unbelievable dog I've ever come across. I mean, laid back isn't even in it. You know how you you normally put your when you meet a dog. They said, "Oh, you must get to know Derek and all of that." So the, anyway, the, um, the, the the dog handler was was holding this sort of large ball of fluff, and uh, well, he's like a moving carpet, really. And um, so I put out my hands so he could get used to my smell. First of all, completely uninterested. Couldn't. couldn't <laughs> No. What, what are you putting your hand out for? <laughs> um, just wants to be cuddled and loved and you lay him on his back and you tickle his tummy and his throat and he just lies there and looks up. I mean, it's a dream, actually, because believe me, I've worked with some difficult dogs before. <laughs> and that's just the actors. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> Yeah, we won't go there. We we won't go there, no, exactly. (laughs) I must say, I saw the first series, which I absolutely adored. I thought it was really, really good. And I can't wait to see you because you'll be perfect, absolutely perfect. Uh, Dog and all. The dog's more perfect than anything I could ever be. Hodge, how long have you been an actress now? Is is it something that... uh, (laughs) You you, you can say to me a long time, you don't have to do years, but I mean... Well, I can. I'm happy to do years. You know what? 50 years. I think I just beat you. I think I've done 54 because I started off at Salisbury Rep at the age of 16 and a half. 
as a stu- student ASM. Did you start in that lowly position as an actress or? No, I would have done. But you see, because I was brought up in North Lincolnshire, which was, you know, ruined by Beecham cutting off all the railways. Oh, yes. There was, for, for a, a few years when I was a child, there was a rep in Lincoln. We went to see one production there from my local school, and that was it. Then it all packed up. And there was nothing. There was no professional theatre company for two hours. So I had to find another route. Did you go to drama school? So I went from school to teacher training college, and I did a, what would now be a degree in teaching. Um, and in that time, I applied to drama school, because by then I could tell everybody to take a running jump. <laughs> So funny you mentioned Bridget Turner because uh, she was its uh, Salisbury rep when I was there. Oh, was she? Oh. Yeah. So, and you know, it was interesting to see how she went on. Uh, repertory, you did, you did quite a few years in rep? No, I, I was lucky, really. I was in my third year at Lambda. We, we had a, a production that was seen by David Orkin, who was looking, he was producing um, a play. He was doing a lot of producing at that point. And there'd been a play at the Edinburgh Festival, which they were bringing into the West End, and it had a a big role for a 16-year-old schoolgirl. So they were going to the drama schools to try and find somebody that could look 16. And they asked me to go and audition. So I went along, and when I walked into the room, to their great credit, they turned me straight away. They said, look... We really wanted to see you, but we have to tell you that we offered the role to Polly James and she just accepted it this morning. Now, Polly, you know, looked 16 till she was 35. Or older. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, but I mean, she, she was a very seasoned actress and I understood in the end they wanted to go for somebody who, you know, was a surefire engagement. So, but they said, let's audition you anyway because we have people coming up. And, and it was from the Travis Theatre in Edinburgh. So I did the audition. And then they got in touch with me and said, we're casting this particular play. Can we see you again? And I got the job. So they actually, latterly, they gave me, gave me a job. So I started at the Travis in Edinburgh. And I was there for about three months. And that's where I first met you. That's right. I mean, I, I can't believe it. I was thinking about where we met and I, I knew it was in Scotland. And that you've just refreshed all my memories there. That's a long time ago. It's actually... 1971. Oh, my goodness. It's frightening, isn't it? Dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Uh, (laughs) It is frightening. And here we are, still friends. We absolutely are. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) We're we're, we're, we're bonded. Uh, uh, Um, We are. Yeah, I mean, you you know, you you were visiting with Portable Theatre Company. And I was in rehearsal, and, and you know that was that was the, your show was the one that was on that that night, and we all, uh, as a company, went to see it. And I thought, who is this fantastic person? It was two plays called Food and Zonk by John Grillo, yeah. if you remember. And yeah. uh, in uh, one of the plays, I had to say the word "fuck." I think about a hundred and forty-eight times. Uh, which gave me a great deal of pleasure. And Maeve Alexander and I were in another play called Food, in which we were the fattest man and woman in the world, with padding, with padding. (laughs) I'd forgotten that, that's right. 
<laughs> and I remember there was in food, uh, there was a, uh, uh, we, we, it was just brilliant stuff. But I mean, when I think about it now, my, this horror strikes me from every angle. But uh, Maeve Alexander's mother, a wonderful, lovely Scottish woman, came to see us. We did the plays at lunchtime. And uh, we, when, I, when we did food and we were the fattest man and woman, the, at one particular point, Maeve had to stand up and said, I feel like wanking. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I specifically looked at, at Maeve's mother because I thought I knew the line was coming up and I knew that I wanted to see what the reaction... And the reaction was very simple. Her, the mother was sitting like this and suddenly she went, where the wanking line came up, she went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was just wonderful. John Grillo, who was an actor, was just the marvellous writer and his, some of the stuff was fantastic. I remember we did a festival on that tour before coming to Edinburgh and when uh, I, I had to... Uh, <laughs> I had to... When I was in the first play, we were two women and we were the same woman, rather. I was the woman for the first half of the play in Zonk and then Maeve took over in the second half and we both wore exactly the same clothes, same wig, everything, except... I, it was me first and then her second. And uh, I, I remember I left the stage before she came on and I used to lift up my dress and I had a huge red dick and red balls. Yes. And if you could remember that. And it used to play to absolute silence. Except when I was in the audience, go on. <laughs> yeah, except when, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but when we, went to Ed, when we went to Edinburgh, uh, no, Dartington, Dartington Hall we went to. And uh, I, I, we kept, the play went on and I took out this, this huge, penis red penis and the balls and there was a silence in the audience like there always was except for this one man in the audience who went oh my god (laughs) (laughs) oh Oh, god Uh, those were such wonderful memories oh they were fantastic fantastic i think he was better received at the travis of course they were a very enlightened audience weren't they yeah it was it was and i remember uh when we did this it was called portable theater if you remember yes and and wherever we went all over the country after the shows we had to go to the bar and we stood around like roman slaves and people came in and pointed to one of us and said right you can come back with me because they provided the accommodation and I remember one night they all uh, the stage management and, and the actors there's only two two actors maybe myself they point and I, they just left me at the end and no one wanted me to go home with them so <laughs> it was awful oh, I can't bear it oh I can't bear it but as a result of that because you asked me how long I did in rep so I did that three months at Edinburgh, and then they asked me, Portable Theatre asked me to join their next tour. So no. I did the very next tour after, yes, after you did, yeah. And that was called, you ready for this? Yes. Plays for Rubber Go-Go Girls. <laughs> and it was all about cartoon strip characters. Oh, God, I love it. Were you, were you dressed in lycra? Um, we were in hot pants, lycra, leather, long... I had oh. high-length leather, leather boots, I seem to remember. Oh, fantastic. You know, chewed gum, did all of that. Yeah, God, the things we did. But I have to say, Patricia, they were wonderful days, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we were very lucky because nowadays I don't think those days exist. 
Do they? No. I mean, theatre in education is about the nearest you get to it, where you, you hop, hop from one place to another and you all help put up the set and all of that. Yes. But, um, but God, talk about learning your craft. And then after I'd done the tour with Portable Theatre, then I went straight to the Chester Gateway Theatre. And I was there for six months doing um, serious plays. And then at the, by the end of doing those three jobs, nose to tail, um, I'd got my 52 weeks in rep on my equity card, which was, uh, in those days, as you know, it was a closed shop, so you had to serve your apprenticeship. I think it was a very good idea, too, that serving your apprenticeship. Absolutely. Because what, what I think is difficult now is that, um, it, it's. I mean, art has to be practised, as you know. It can't necessarily be learned. It just is practice, practice, practice. And um, so they were, they, they were kind audiences that you were playing to. You, you weren't too overexposed in them but you had to think on your feet you had to learn things very quickly the turnover was great and so on but you also learned the whole etiquette of theatre and these days that's missing that there is a there is a, a real unspoken but learned acquired etiquette to the, the hierarchy of theatre how you address people the, the mores how you what the rules are well the discipline Really, it comes down to a, an iron discipline. If you haven't had that experience, you're not going to learn it. No. I remember at Salisbury Rep, when I was a student ASM, Jan Harvey, uh, I think it was Jan Harvey, her name, she was a wonderful stage manager, and she chastised me for calling Stephanie Cole, Stephanie. Yes. She said, I don't care what you call her in, uh, in your playtime or when you're going out or what have you, but in, in theatres, you call her Miss Cole. That's right. And you call uh, Mr Biggins. And it's, it, it, was, it remained with me still to this day. Uh, and I think it's, that's something is, which is not taught anymore, unfortunately. No, it's not taught. Uh, the whole thing about um, never appearing beyond the stage door in your costume or in anything. In other words, in other words, to keep the illusion. Yes, Keeping absolutely. the illusion of theatre in all its forms. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, for this podcast, I asked you to bring along three things yeah. and uh, that, that mean something to you in your life and your career. Have you got your first one there? I've got my first one. Hang on. I'm going to have to disengage for a second. Oh. <laughs> right. It's a coffin. <laughs> I've got, it, I've got it all ready. It's sitting under the bed. I'm keeping my green shield stamps in it at the moment. Now, it's very, very tarnished, but that is yes. a coronation spoon from the 1936 coronation of... Um, no. Yeah. Mm, it's that coronation. 36? Queen's parents. So it's not the Queen's coronation. King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, as in the Queen Mother. Good heavens. And this spoon um, was owned by my grandmother. And obviously she and my late grandfather, who I never knew, he died just before I was born. But they'd obviously bought that as um, a souvenir of that coronation, as people do. And um, it sat, it's very tarnished because it, it's not silver. It's not made of silver. It's, you know, whatever it is. I must get it recoated at the something. But it won't clean up anymore. It's just it's sort of had its day. But I won't let it go. And um, when we were children, we used to fight over that. Can I have the coronation just to stir your, your, your tea or your coffee or whatever. Um, so, um, and then my grandmother died and I, you know, I, she left it to me. 
So it sits in my cutlery drawer and I don't use it, but I just give it a little hello. So you've, ah, you've got me to pull that out. Fantastic. It's a reminder of the sort of royal succession that we've lived with because I do feel that our lives are so informed by the reign of our queen in that she has been there for almost all, uh, I mean, probably for the whole of your life, certainly for almost all of my life. And I remember the moment when um, I was in bed and I was six years old and my, um, my mother walked into the bedroom and opened the door and it was a school day, but she came in extra early and she said, the king's died. And it was a massive, massive deal for the nation. It was a shock because, of course, communication wasn't the same in those days. I know you're a, a royalist like I am. And uh, we, we both watched this year the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral, which we were both very moved by in many, many ways, because I thought it was so fantastic. Do you see the royal family succeeding when the Queen goes? Do you think they'll move on? Do you think they'll develop into something else? Do you think they will live up to Her Majesty the Queen's incredible monarchy? I think one could say incomparable. There's never been a monarch like her, and there never will be again. No. What is difficult to quantify is the effect that that um, the media is having on our lives. And this is the, the main thing is that what we just said not long ago about the illusion of theatre, monarchy is an illusion as well, and it needs to be. There are things in life that you still, I think you still need to revere because they're almost intangible. You can't quite, to, to get near them, as we know, is sort of extraordinary and special. And the illusion, if it's going to be shattered by the invasion of the media, I think then that's, that's going to be a difficult one. I would like to think that there are enough people that wish to keep that illusion going because there's, there's no question that they serve a most wonderful and extraordinary purpose in our lives because they are living history. And the, the main thing we have in this country is our history. We are a strange little kingdom which is stuffed with history which fascinates people all the world over and there at the center of it all is is this living breathing family which is full of the most extraordinary traditions and i think we'd lose i mean we'd lose everything we'd lose our identity if it goes and i know when we sat together two saturdays ago whatever it was uh we both mentioned the fact that we do pageantry like no other country and this is all part of it and i think it has it has such an impact on it. It sort of brings everything together, doesn't it? It brings the military, it brings our history, it brings art and, and creativity, music, everything. It brings it all together in these extraordinary, exceptional events. And, you know, the other thing is that, that the, the monarchy bring far more money into the country than they cost. Mm. So why change it? Why change something that's worked anyway. No, I, I feel like you. Now, uh, Hodge, you've got something else to show me. Give me some clues about the next one. Well, I can, I've got a very small thing and a larger thing. Which would you like first? <laughs> so let's have the larger thing. Um, well, this is a professional thing. It's sort of emblematic of the way that I... What's the word? The, 
the embellishments, if you like, of, or, or it, it's, to, it's to do with the way that I run myself when I'm in theatre. Let's put it like that. Is it a makeup box? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I'm going to get it. Hang on. <laughs> It's extremely heavy. Oh my goodness, that is a real makeup box. That is, is it wood? Yes, it's incredibly heavy. Now, the story of this, and I'll, I'll just open it a bit so you can. Yeah, oh, I see that. So you've just opened this lovely, it's red, isn't it? Is it red? Red inside, yeah. And it's, it's got all kinds of drawers and things that all, all, all pull out. And, and a lovely mirror, too, as you, as you open the lid. And it's full of drawers, drawers with all the... Oh, yes. Wonderful. Wonderful. And it's got these wonderful latches on it, silver latches. I mean, absolutely wonderful. Did, did someone make it for you or give it to you? No, no, no. It was, it was made. So um, I did, um, a number of years ago, the year was um, 1987... I was over in Hollywood for um, for about three or four months. She says, just tossing that in, <laughs> um, doing doing a film for Blake Edwards, and um, the, the makeup girl on on the movie. And they were all you can imagine very grown up California makeup girls. They knew what they were doing. And one of them had one of these. And uh, and until then, I'd had some little plastic tool. You know, toolbox. We used to buy those, didn't we, to put the sticks of makeup and everything in. And I said, "Oh my God, where did you get that?" And she said, "Oh, it's one man that makes them over here." And um, she ordered one for me. It took about four or five weeks for him to make it, and it was rather an eye-watering amount of money at the time. But um, look, hey, I was I was doing a movie, so it was all right. And uh, I managed to get it back on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> as hand luggage as hand, hand luggage literally I, I didn't dare let it out of my sight no but it's been very treasured and the thing it's difficult for you to see now but it has what I loaded it up with over the years has almost all remained I mean I can hardly get the lid closed now because people you know what it is pe- people from stage doors send you little tokens little mice and teddy bears and all those little things I keep in that box so every time I go into a new theatre production I'm not just opening what I need to use practically for this production, but I'm looking at every other production I've ever done. Incredible. They are, they are wonderful makeup boxes. I've got a makeup box, but not as, as, uh, as super duper as that one, I must say. But it is wonderful to have a collection of different things. And you're right, you're reminded things as you bring things out, you know, they sort of, memories come floating. Um, no, it's, it's lovely. What was the film you were doing in, in America? Uh, well, it was a film that um, <laughs> that didn't really see too much light of day. It was called Sunset, and it was when Bruce Willis was signed to TriStar on a three-picture deal. He he was is when he made the, the the transfer across from the small screen to the big screen. Because if you remember, in in the eighties, really, you were either a television actor or you were a film actor, but you. If you were a film actor, you didn't do television. And if you were a television actor, you'd be very unlikely to be offered film. But this was the moment at which it all began to change because Bruce was such a big star, has such a big following from Moonlighting, wasn't it, that it was called? Yeah. Um, And they signed him up to this three-picture deal, and this was the second picture he made. And it was a sort of murder mystery comedy. 
I've done a couple of things over in America and you do feel very excited by it, don't you? It's a sort of, you know, if my, if my mother could see me now sort of thing, you know. Yes, I know. And when you're in those big studios and you're on the, on the lot, yeah. and those, you know, the, the commissary and all the lingo is, is there and you drive through the arch and uh, no, it's, it was very exciting. It's very exciting from that point of view. Right, uh, Patricia, thank you. We're going to have a little break now, five minutes, and then we're going to come back and talk about my item that I'm going to show you. Hi, Trisha, we're back again. I've got uh, my item here and I'm going to give you three clues. It's first of all, I'm going to say this is a first. That's not a very good clue. This is the first. And the second clue is it's a naked couple. And the third clue is it started my career off in another direction. Um, something from I'm a Celebrity? No, no, no. I, I, I tell you, because it's, uh, they're a bit obscure, those clues. But the, the item I'm going to show you is a drawing. I'll bring it up now and show it to you. It's the first thing I ever bought <gasps> as uh, a, a, an actor. You can kind of see it there. Oh. And do you remember there was the Watermill Theatre in Reading? Yes, yes. Did you, did you ever appear, appear there? No. And they had a, an exhibition. And I was, on, I was on something like £18 a week. And I, there's two of those. They come in a pair. And they, I just love them. And they're quite superb. They're by uh, an artist, an American artist, I think. Hang on, let me have a look. Do you know, I can't remember. Anyway, it's 1970 I bought them. And they're, they're the start of my career wow. in art. I mean, as you, as you know, you've been to my house many times. Yes. I love art. And I've been collecting art for many, many, many years, since 1970. That was the first. And I paid for those two. There are two the same size, £40. And remember, I was on a tiny salary. 18. And, you know, it was, it, I really had to think about it. I really, I don't know where I found the money from, but I did find the money from. And, of course, it was, it was a joy. And I, I still love them to this day. And... It's been a joy to collect art and have it around the house. And I don't know what I would do. I mean, we're thinking of moving and I don't know how I would move with all the paintings. I just can't get rid of anything. I mean, I love, I love everything. But you love art, don't you, darling? I do. Um, I think it's a, it's a natural for actors, actually, as a sort of another focus of passion, if you like, artistic passion. And uh, I've got, a, for example, a, an original Laura Knight, pen and ink drawing. She's fabulous. I love her stuff. Yes. Oh, yes. Me too. I've, I've got a few things. I find it odd when you go to visit people and they don't have any art on the walls or they don't have any books. I find that another extraordinary yes. thing. And yeah. I, it's, it's something that's a passion of mine, paintings or drawings and, and books. I love them. I, when I was looking to, to move and to, to my flat, there were three things that I had to have. One was an art wall. Second was a, a library, and the third was a space for my piano. Did, was, were you taught as a child the piano? Yes, from the age of six. But um, I did, uh, I mean, I went a long way with it, but you know what, in, in years and years and years, I didn't, you know, I, 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 you've got to keep practising. I'm practising at the moment, actually, because I might, I might play in private lives. I had piano lessons from Mr Lewis when I was at school, and we, all we did in, le in the lesson side was gossip. So all I can play is Daffodil Dell very badly. 
But my God, did we gossip. It was wonderful. Oh. oh. <laughs> but I, I, I just, I, I love art. I think art is one of the most wonderful. I wish, I wish I could paint. Actually, that's one of the things I wish I really could do. Have, have you tried it? Have you, have you tried it? Uh, not really. I just, I'm too frightened of it, I think, in a way. I mean, it's something I would love to do. And I can't say I'd love to do it in my old age because I'm here. I should be doing it now whilst I'm talking to you. But I mean, no, I don't have a flair for it, I don't think. I have a flair. I know what I like. And the marvellous thing about my collection is it's mainly people I know, you know, which I think is that tells a story too, you know. I mean, I I remember I've got a, if you remember, I've got a wonderful queen, like an Elizabethan queen, which is huge in the drawing room. And uh, it was painted and it was uh, huge. And I have that wall to put it on, that big wall. And I bought it in, Bel- I went to open an exhibition in Belfast of this, the artist. And it was, I think it was £25,000. And I said, I cannot pay £25,000. I haven't got it. But if it's still for sale when the exhibition closes, I'd love it for 5000 And in fact, it, 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 it didn't sell because you had to have a big wall for it, what, mainly. But I, I did pay 5000 which is the most I've ever paid for anything. But my God, you got it for £5,000. Wow. I did, I did. And I've got several really lovely, I've got a lovely Hockley print which I bought for £100, and I know now it's worth 10000 even though it's not signed. I mean, it's just one of those things, you know. I, I would love to own an original Hockney. I've got a lovely story, actually. I, uh, I, I went down to Pat Hayes uh, to open an exhibition, uh, a pop concert, and we were sitting in, the, in her drawing room having a, a, a cup of tea, and in came a man who I knew vaguely, and he said, who owns the Peugeot? And I said, oh, I do. And he said, I just bumped into it. <laughs> and I said, oh, and he said, yes, please let me know how much it is. And of course, I remembered who he was. He was the agent to Hockney in London. So when uh, the bill came in and it was something like £1,500, I rang and I said, look, I'm terribly sorry, but it's £1,500. He said, oh, oh, dear. OK, I said, oh. He said, I don't suppose you'd like a Hockney print, would you? And I said, damn right I would. So I took the Hockney print instead. <laughs> oh, God, how wonderful. Which I've still got, uh, which I love. Oh, God, wouldn't we? Oh, wouldn't you die yeah. to? Oh, I know, fantastic. an original one. I do actually like antique posters a lot from the 20s and 30s. And um, I've, got, I've got a few original film posters. Yeah which I buy just for their decorative quality. And the, the most recent thing I bought was a couple of um, advertising, but really antique advertising posters, which we're, are going to go up on, on my kitchen wall over there. I've got to get them framed. I, I think art says a lot about people. I mean, you know, I really do. And, and, you, and you can remember that you had to really scrimp and save to get the money to pay for things, you know. Yeah, and then feel as guilty as hell afterwards. I know, I know, I know. The odd £5,000 here, £5,000, there's a lot of money in those days. It's difficult to justify the expense as well. But when, once you've got them up and you wait a while, then you're incredibly glad that you did it. Yes, no, I, I, love, I love my art. Right, now we're going to come up now. This is your final item, Patricia. Oh, there it is. What is that? Can I, can I read it? Stripey to the rescue. Yeah. Oh, it's a book about a zebra. It is. This book was, um, and I pulled it out. This is not the original one I had as a child. I don't know what happened to that. That, you know, makes me weep, but it must have got lost 
I should think my parents at some point, you know, gave it away or something during one of our many moves. But um, I suddenly came into my head not about about a year or two ago, and I thought, stripey to the rescue. And I went on an antique book site, and I managed to find one and, and paid for it. And it, this is exactly as I remember it. And it's from, um, funnily enough, my daughter-in-law immediately said, oh, I know this this book. It's from a, a series called The Toys on the Shelf. And it's a woman called Ivy Wallace who used to write about this little group of toys that sat on a child's shelf. But the reason that this is, and so I'm thrilled to have it, to have a, you know, it, it, to, to be reminded. And it's, it's really special to me because, and this is the notable thing about it, of all the things we read when we were children, and there are, you know, there are many um, books I could um, single out as having um, made an impact. But this one was the first time that I cried over a book. Aww. It moved me so much. And I used to read this book over and over again. And every time I got to this same thing, I cried. And when you when you connect with your emotions like that, I mean, normally, you know, as a child, you cry because you're hurt or because you haven't got what you wanted or something. But this was a different kind of, of thing. And it's this motion that swept over me. And let me find you the significant picture, because it's about the friendship between little, little Zebra and his giraffe friend who goes missing. And Stripey goes to look for him. And he's been taken away by some gypsies. And Stripey eventually finds the gypsy encampment and he sits on a hillside on his own all night, watching out for his friend. And I think it was just that thing that must have struck me about the nature of friendship. If you can see that picture there, where you see little little stripey on the hillside and there's the gypsy. Yes. Oh, my. That's enchanting. And that used to absolutely slay me. And I thought that's very interesting because that must have been the moment at which you realize you, you're empathetic, which I think is a very vital part of our makeup as actors. Absolutely. And also the power of friendship, which um, is to both you and me, it's a, it's a very important, a really the, very, well, it's, it's what we live and breathe, isn't it? It's life. It's life. Yeah. I know. It's, yeah. It is. So that's why it, it, it's got significance. Did the author uh, do the drawings as well? Oh, no, it is. Yes, yeah, she did. Ivy L. Wallace, written and illustrated by. Is that signed by her? Um, yes, but not personally. No, that, that's, she, she always did. And I don't know who she was. Actually, I need to look her up. Um, but they were a very popular series of books. But, you know, that's the only one I ever remember. Fantastic. It's funny how, uh, you know, books, you know, from your childhood can stay with you uh, always. I mean, you know, it's uh, it, 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 in a small way, I loved Andy Pandy. Oh, yes. You know, which I adored and once again got very emotional about. Oh, no. You know, and I, I find that... And Muffin the Mule. Do you remember Muffin the Mule? Oh, I love Muffin the Mule. Was it Muriel? Who was the woman? Muriel? No, Annette, Annette Mills. Uh, ah, that's who right. Who was jo John Mills' sister. And she was the first... Oh, really? Yes, she was John Mills' sister. And she was the first woman to dance the Charleston in this country. No. And talk about reinventing herself. Yeah. So she was a dancer, but she, she reinvented herself as a children's entertainer. And she used to sit at the piano, do you remember, and sing, here comes Muffin, Muffin the Mule. That's right, that's yeah. right. She had a wonderful look about her. Oh, yeah, she was lovely. 
Yeah. She was lovely and had that sort of auntie quality about her as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I, I love that quality. I mean, and it was very period, wasn't it? Yes. Her hair was in a very period way. Exactly. And I could sing, I, I'm not going to, but I could sing you the whole song now. It, it sort of, <laughs> it, it stays with you. I know. Well, Hodge, um, you, uh, forgive me for calling, I always call Hodge, Patricia Hodge, Hodge. I don't know why. Uh, it's a bit like Biggins. I mean, I just, do many people call you Hodge? Um, not that many, but in a way it's easier because having a name like Patricia, I've got people that from day one, and it's very difficult this, it, day one in a rehearsal room, whatever you're called in that moment by the director is what sticks with the rest of the cast. And so there are certain directors who call me Pat without asking me. And I don't, I'm not Pat and I don't want to be Pat. No, 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 no. You're not a Pat at all. But I haven't got the courage to turn around and say, would you mind not calling me that? (laughs) Um, And there was, and then a a lot of people know me as Trish. Well, when I was at drama school, I was called Trish and Trisha. So there's people that call me Patricia, people that call me Trish, people that call me Trisha. There are a few that still call me Pat. There are one or two that call me Patty. And then it's easier to say Hodge because there's only me and Douglas <laughs> in the whole of the profession. And you ain't no Douglas Hodge, darling, thank goodness. <laughs> well, I'd yeah, be happy to. I think he's a very, very talented. Yeah, he is. He is. Him. We did. Uh, he's a bloke. He's a bloke. We did. Uh, I directed him in Midsummer Night's Dream at Regent's Park Open Air Theatre. Did you? And he he obviously didn't think I was a very good. I, had, I, I, I wasn't. In his book, a good director, and so uh, uh, he just presumed that you know because of me being Biggins. And uh, at the end of it, he said, you, "You've done me proud. Thank you very much." But I always, you know, oh. remember because we did have a good time. We had in the same production. We had the uh, the ice skater. Do you remember uh, famous ice skater John Curry? John Curry and John Curry played the one of the lovers opposite him, the two male lovers. And John Curry came to me and he said, uh, "Oh, Biggins," he said, "Listen, uh, the play scene is so fucking boring. Do I have to sit through it?" And I said, "John, you do have to sit through because it's very important." He said, "Oh, I don't know. I don't want to do it. No, I I'm not going to do it." So I said, "Look, why don't we meet tomorrow morning uh, at?" nine o'clock before the others come in and we'll just have a chat about it well the next morning at nine o'clock it was pissing with rain i can't tell you so we sat under an umbrella and he cried i cried at the end of it he said you're right we must do this scene oh. <laughs> oh. He was adorable. But he was very good actually so we've had your spoon darling which i loved your uh, I, I knew you were a royalist through and through and I, now i'm confirmed I adored your makeup box. I mean, how chic is that? And I adore your book on the zebra. I just think it's absolutely fabulous. Three wonderful things. Thank you so much, darling, and good luck with everything, and the TV series, and good luck with everything. Thank you. So lovely to talk to you. And you, darling. See you soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Show and Tell podcast. If you want to hear more conversations like this one, make sure you follow Show and Tell with Biggins on the podcast provider of your choice. And if you'd be so kind as to tell your friends about the podcast, I'd be ever so grateful. You can also follow us on social media. We're at Biggins Podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.